so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Do you ever stop and think just how strange it is that many of us talk to several digital devices as if they were people? We've even given them names. As Russell Moore points out, it can be hard to determine where being a human stops and being a machine starts. At Evangelicals for Life, he addressed this topic in his talk, A Human Voice, The Mystery of Life in an Age of Machines. We hope you enjoy this message. I wonder if you would turn your Bibles, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Luke 18. I'd like for us to start reading with verse 31 and read down through chapter 19 and verse 10. Luke 18, 31 to 19, 10. And since this is the Word of the living God, would you please stand with me out of reverence for the Word of our Lord? Holy Spirit says through Luke, And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in the front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place and looked out and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come on down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner." And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, 
today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. May God bless his word to us today, and you may be seated. One time when I was serving in a church very early in, in my ministry, we had a woman in the church who was talking about just how brilliant and bright and gifted their little toddler was. And she said, she's just so uh, amazing. She said, even though she's so little and, of course, can't spell and can't read, she can tell when we're spelling out words. She said, there's a little treat that sometimes we will stop and get after church. And she said, you know, I don't know whether or not my husband uh, is planning to do that or not. So she said, sometimes I'll kind of say, hey, what about, and I'll spell out the name of that treat. She knows the spelling of that word. And from her little car seat, she'll start crying out that she wants to, to do it. She said, have you ever heard of a child this gifted? And I said, well, no, that is remarkable. I said, what's the treat that she likes? She said, it's an icy. And I thought, so you're saying, do you want I-C-E-E? As far as she knows, you're just saying an I-C with two other E's at the end. But, you know, thank God for geniuses uh, anyway. But the, the, the pattern there, sort of spelling out words that we don't want children to hear, something that anybody who's ever been a parent or an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent is accustomed to doing. You, you want to spell out a birthday present or a Christmas present or something that you don't want your child uh, to figure out. My wife Maria and I have done that many times with our children, but we found ourselves doing it relatively recently in ways that we would have never predicted. Uh, I was speaking to a group of church planters, and they gave me a, a basket of, of gifts and one of them was an Amazon Echo set up, and uh, I was using it to play music and to stream music. But I happened to see a news article that I was trying to tell my wife about in which Amazon was trying to figure out how to advertise for Alexa, the Amazon Echo uh, persona, during the Super Bowl without automatically electrifying every Amazon Echo in the country and shutting down the system. So in telling my wife about this, I said they're trying to, I didn't want to wake the thing up either, keep A-L-E-X-A. And I finally realized I'm spelling out the name of a computerized program that is listening to everything I say for her own name. And if I had tried to explain that scenario to myself, even as recently as three or four years ago, I not only would not have understood it, I would have found it creepy and terrifying. And I'm not sure I don't find it that way even now. We're, we're living in a time where the machinery around us is becoming more and more complex, more and more integrated into our lives so that reports are coming out right now about with the acceleration of artificial intelligence, as one report put it, it could be that 40% of the jobs that we now know will be gone in as, as early as 15 years from now. 
As one artificial intelligence expert said, this is going to change the history of mankind more than electricity, more than anything else we have seen in the past. At the same time, we're seeing gene editing of babies. We're seeing technology doing all sorts of remarkable things, both in ways that are good. Most of the people who are participating with us right now are watching in churches live streamed all over uh, the country, and in some cases all over the world, who couldn't do that if we didn't have uh, technology. But also in ways that can cause us sometimes to feel as though we're not really sure where being a human stops and being a machine starts. That's really not a new phenomenon. That's not a new problem. As uh, Wendell Berry pointed out many, many years ago, the central issue of our time is whether or not we will see human beings as creatures or as machines. Whether or not we will be able to tell the difference between the mechanized voices that speak to us all the time and the human voice, the voice of a flawed but dignified creature. That is indeed the challenge of our age and really of every age. I mean, when we think about the the questions that we're addressing this week, that's really what it's about. Whether or not we're dealing with creatures or whether or not we're dealing with machines. And abortion culture will say, my body is my own, as though the body is simply a a construction of responses rather than a mystery created by a God who is sovereign over his world. Many will say, well, when it comes to an abortion, you can always have a baby later, as though they were manufactured items and every baby is the same. When we're thinking about children who are right now in foster care homes or waiting to be in foster care homes or in some cases being trafficked around the world, they're often treated as though they were simply defined in terms of their usefulness and in terms of the poor the trafficked, the vulnerable women, the elderly who are languishing in many cases in loneliness, when usefulness is the definition of whether or not one is worth something, then we have turned human beings into machines. And when one stops being useful or is never considered to be useful in the first place, those people are discarded even as we would discard an outdated technology. That's a, that's a serious, serious issue, and it draws us back to that question of the voice. And we see that here in this account from Luke about Jericho. In Jericho, you have two outcasts, two people who are on the margins of society in two completely different ways encountering Jesus. One of them is an unnamed, in this text, poor blind man who is oppressed. 
not just by his circumstances, but by the people around him. And the other is a renowned, wealthy government official who is, in fact, an oppressor. And both of them are speaking in voices that are so clearly human here, in both their terror and despair and in their joy and hope, and there we can see our own, we can hear our own voices. We are the people who sing amazing grace. I once was blind, but now I see. Those of us who have been Christians for a long time are often so familiar with the little uh, Sunday school lessons, uh, songs, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he, that it was hard for me to actually read the text the way the text is written without automatically going into the way that the the song is written. These These are part of our stories. So what do they have to do with what God is calling us to do right now? I want to suggest to you two things. I think we see in this text... Jesus showing us something about human dignity. This man who was blind, who is there on the the side of the road, he had to ask the people who were around him, what's this hubbub? What's happening here on the road? And this is someone that the people around him would have seen as a burden. As we know from elsewhere in the Bible, some of them would have assumed Well, the fact that he's blind means he must have done something wrong. The fact that he's blind must mean even Jesus' own disciples, in some case, are asking, did his parents sin? Did they make God mad? Did he do something that made God mad? What is it that is wrong with him? And he would have been seen as somebody who's not putting out any economic output of his own. He's someone who is completely dependent upon the people around him. In this case, even just to be directed toward what's happening. But notice what the Bible says. This blind man cries out, son of David. Language that everybody would have understood refers to the king that God is going to send to deliver his people. And the interesting thing about this text is that the blind man is able to see what the disciples of Jesus himself were not able to see. They could not understand, text says, what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem, what he was telling them. But this blind man is able to understand and to cry out to Christ as Christ. He has a different sort of sight here. But the reaction of the crowd is one that we see so many times in Scripture to seek to silence him. He's a distraction. Stop yelling. We're trying to let this teacher come through in the same way that they said to the children as they're coming to be welcomed by, be quiet. In the same way that the religious leaders said when the children are singing out, Hosanna, be quiet. They're indignant here. We want to silence this person because he's a problem. He's a burden. We don't want to be distracted by that. And to silence him is to make him imperceptible so that Jesus, in their trying here, would be able to do what it is that he wanted to do without having to acknowledge the fact that this person is here. That's exactly, 
That's exactly what takes place in our own society when it comes to the people who are so vulnerable that we don't want to recognize that they're there. So when we think about the unborn, It's easy to say, well, this is just a glob of tissue. This is just so small. Or to say, I don't really want to, even even if I have the, the right sorts of instincts here, I don't want to talk about it because if I talk about abortion, given how controversial abortion is and how politicized uh, the, the issue is, it's going to make me sound too sort of right-wing. Or uh, other people who will say, we have immigrants and refugees uh, around us in our community who are hurting and who are in need of ministry. But you know, how politicized everything is, if we talk about immigrants or refugees or the poor in our community, it's going to make us sound too left-wing. So we're just not going to talk about that. Or when we're thinking about issues of the elderly, we say we really just don't know what to do about so many of those people who are in need of just human contact. And so it's easier for us just to forget about them or about their families who are taking care of them. When we think about the, the huge issue of foster care crisis, it's just easy for us not to talk about that and to talk about other things. They say, we want to silence you. And yet... Consciences are formed in the light of the people from whom we don't want to hear. Come here to Washington, D.C. This week, March for Life, many of the people here are our Roman Catholic friends and allies. And when Roe versus Wade was handed down in the early 1970s, there were many evangelical Christians who said, that's a Catholic issue. I don't want to talk about that. It sounds too Catholic. We've got other things to do in sharing the gospel and carrying out the mission of of Christ around the world. It's a distraction from us. In the same way that right now, in many churches, all sorts of other people who are inconvenient, let's just not see them, let's not talk about them, let's silence them, But Jesus is different. Jesus sees beyond that social pressure. He sees beyond the identity politics. And he sees the person. And he sees this person not as a thing, not as a machine. He sees him as someone created in the image of the God who is Lord over all things. And Jesus says to him, what do you want? This is probably the first time that this man had ever been asked any question, much less, what do you want me to do for you? He sees him and he reflects to him the love and the mercy of the gospel and of God because this This man is not a decision, he's not a machine, he's a mystery, he's a miracle. When you're really confronted with what humanity actually is, the only response can be one ultimately of awe. 
That's one of the reasons why so many people have come to faith or come back to faith more consistently when a baby comes into their life. And they look at this, this creature and they realize this isn't something I could construct. This isn't something that I could achieve. This is something that is a gift, the dignity of humanity in the human voice. But notice, that's not the only voice we hear here. There's also the voice of gospel mission. Jesus moves on into Jericho, and he encounters Zacchaeus. We little man, we little man was he. Couldn't, couldn't see above the crowd, so he went and got in a sycamore tree. For our Catholic friends who might be here, might be watching live stream, uh, as evangelicals, we don't have patron saints. Uh, but if we did, Zacchaeus would be mine. Uh, I could always use a good sycamore tree in, in almost any crowd that I'm in. But the very fact that we know that about Zacchaeus is because of what Luke is doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here. Nobody in the crowd would have been defining Zacchaeus as a wee little man. They would have seen him in terms of his power, just as they would have been seeing the blind man simply in terms of his vulnerability. And yet, what the Holy Spirit does here is to show us the blind man in terms of his power. He recognizes Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is able to speak out what it is that he needs and he wants. And he shows us this government collaborating, sinful to the core, but wealthy and, and able to retaliate against all of his enemies, person in terms of his vulnerability. The blind man, even in his blindness, can see some things that others can't see with their sight. Zacchaeus can't see what everybody else can see, even in terms of his social stature. He says, Zacchaeus here comes, and Jesus again defies all of the social pressure around him. It's a tax collector. It's not an IRS agent. That's somebody who is using his power in order to bully and intimidate and extort money from people in order to make himself more wealthy and make himself more powerful. But Jesus says to him, I am going to your house. Now, this is stunning because you did not, in this culture, invite yourself to somebody else's house. And it's not because, well, my mother wouldn't think that's polite. It's because in that sort of a shame-honor culture, if you said, I'm coming to your house, and people couldn't provide for you in terms of hospitality, they couldn't afford it, or they didn't have anything there, it would be such a humiliation that that person would be, uh, would be humiliated in front, of, in front of the entire society. But Jesus says, I'm coming to your house, and I'm going to eat with you. Being not only seen with this person who was a shamefully sinful oppressor of people, but also I'm going to come and eat with you knowing full well what sort of controversy was going to break out when he did so. What's important for us, though, to see here right now 
is that the controversy here that Jesus is provoking is coming in two directions. There would have been a controversy because Jesus is calling these tax collectors to repentance. And not just to, well, I feel kind of bad about the things I'm doing, but I'm going to redirect and to change my entire life. There's a controversy. No controversy if you simply say to people, do whatever you want to, God will get over it. It's not what Jesus does. He calls them to repentance. That's controversial with the tax collectors themselves. And he provokes the controversy because he is willing to be in relationship with the people that he is calling to repentance. He doesn't give up on people even as far out as they are. There would have been all kinds of people who would have been willing to say, God is forgiving, God is merciful, but God is merciful to people who sin like I do or maybe a little bit more. And we still have that tendency. But what Jesus is showing here is God is not shocked by this sin and God does not leave you in that sin. That's what Jesus is calling us to in this moment where we live in a time where the very createdness of our neighbors is in question at almost every turn. We have to speak in a way consistent with the gospel so that we're speaking a word of justice. God is just. God does not ignore what happens to the cries of the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalized and the unborn and the elderly and the stranger. God does not ignore that. He hears the cries of those who are being oppressed. And so we then have to be the people who hear the voices of those women who are in crisis situations and saying, what's going to happen? I can't afford this baby. My parents are going to throw me out of the house if I have this baby. My husband's going to leave me if I have this baby. We hear their voices and say, God hears you, and we're here with you. We hear the voices of unborn children who have no functioning vocal cords, who can't speak for themselves, to say, these lives are not inconveniences. These lives are children loved by God. We hear the voices of children in foster care. We hear the voices of refugees fleeing for their, for their lives in places where they're being persecuted. We hear the voices of elderly people in nursing homes or in their own houses or apartments. I was just reading right before I went to bed last night an article in the Atlantic that brought me to unexpected tears because a study had been done of the last words of people as they're dying. And they interviewed hospice care workers and nurses and doctors to say, what do people say when they're at the, the last point of death? And what they found was, in terms of men, looking at men, all kinds of responses, but the by far most common last words of elderly men as they're dying is mama. 
mother. That vulnerability that we come into the world with. Mama, I need you. Is exactly how we go out of the world. That's a necessary word to say God hears oppression and God will bring to judgment the oppression of the weak. That's a necessary word, but it's not the only word. It's not a sufficient word. Because Jesus not only says that, but he also says, come to me. Come to me, you, and you, and you, and you. And what Jesus does is he doesn't just say a word of invitation to the oppressed, but also to the oppressor. You can be reconciled to God. The gospel is a word to those from those who have been forgiven of many sins to other people. You can be forgiven of many sins, maybe different sins, maybe more socially unacceptable sins. But there is forgiveness in the blood of Christ. So the word that Jesus is speaking is to say, those who have aborted and who are thinking, if anybody knew what I have done, they would never receive me. Jesus says, come to me. Not come to me and ignore what happened. Come to me through the cross of Jesus Christ where the judgment of God has already fallen and where the love of God is seen, where he is specifically speaking to you to say, I know what I'm doing. There are no asterisks here to say except for you. To those who have broken up families, to those who have abandoned their own children, because they walked out on a marriage and didn't return any telephone calls, and they think, but the gospel's not for somebody like me all these years later. Oh, yes, he says, I'm speaking to you, to those who are in bondage to substance abuse and to those who have been selling them the substances. He speaks the word, come to me, to those who are in power, Jesus says, the gospel redirects you to use that power. Zacchaeus, when he comes to repentance, says, not only am I not going to do this anymore, I'm going to pay back what it is that I have done. Not in a way to, well, somehow I'm going to make it up to God, but as a way of saying, this is what the joy that we see here, the joyfulness that Zacchaeus has of repentance shows itself in that freely giving back. That's one of the reasons why some of the most used by God people in ministering to women who are in situations of pregnancy that are in crisis are women who have been there themselves at one point, who have aborted themselves at one point, that God then uses in their new creation life to be able to speak to those who were in the same situation. One of the reasons why some of the most effective advocates for orphan care and adoption and foster care are often those who were the most reluctant to be involved with that in the first place. God 
uses Zacchaeus' money and he uses the blind man's proclamation and he uses them together because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we march. People are here for all sorts of reasons. We're here because we're the people who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And where does that all happen? It happens in Jesus' own march for life, march to death. He's headed to Jerusalem here. He's headed to the cross where Jesus identified himself with the vulnerable. He identified himself with sinners. He poured out his life for the forgiveness of sins, and he poured out his life for a new creation in which there is no oppression, no killing, no mistreatment, no death. And so to advocate then for the weakest and the smallest among us, we have to know how to recognize the beauty of the human voice. The voice that cries out, have mercy on me. And the voice that speaks back, you're forgiven. In order to advocate for the smallest and the weakest among us, we can't do it standing on our own two feet. We have to stand on the only tree that we have, an old rugged cross. We, we have to, when we're dealing with life and death in the balance, recognize that a, a wee little gospel won't do. We have to recognize that we're the people to whom Jesus has given his very own presence in the indwelling Holy Spirit, in the preaching of his word, in the singing of the body together, in the tearing of the bread and the clinking of the cups, in an age of machines and of human beings treated as machines in which everyone is longing for connectedness. We're the people who know connectedness can be good, but connectedness is not enough. We need communion. And in an era of machine where everyone's longing for effectiveness, effectiveness is fine, but effectiveness is not enough. We need mission. And in an era of machines where everyone's longing for information, information's okay, but we need more than information. We need a word. And not just an abstract word, but a word that has become flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory, glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And in an age of machines, we have to be the people who are able to speak with confidence to those who are in power. There is a God, and he sees you. And with mercy to those who are weak and forgotten and nearly invisible to say Jesus loves you and he gives all of that to us in a human voice. Jesus of Nazareth, son of David. So we march for life, but we march beyond that to eternal life. Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. 
For more information on this topic, visit ERLC.com. And be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play and leave us a review. Join us again next week for a message by Jen Wilkin.